I've been through many crises since 07. This is the first time a crisis was actually created from a safe asset. What killed everybody was duration. These guys weren't buying three month T-bills, they were buying 30 year bonds and 30 year mortgages. The long 30 year bond ETF almost lost more money than the S&P 500 last year. Think about that. Duration is a very, very real risk, right? And that's what killed these banks. Excited to introduce to our podcast Anthony DiMartino, uh, a friend of mine who I've gotten to know in the industry. Uh, he's a, the CEO of Trident Digital Group uh, with 20 plus years of Wall Street experience. And he also boasts some crypto native experience at Coinbase and Matrixport, two very well established companies that I think are doing amazing work in the space. So, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So we're wanting to know a little bit about you. Tell us how you got into crypto and what you're doing now and briefly summarize for us what you do at your current company. Sure. So as you mentioned before, I was 20 years in uh, on Wall Street, always running trading desks. So it was uh, UBS. I was a short-term interest rate trader uh, before I took on the, the agency desk, which for people who don't know, that's trading Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac between 07 to 2012. So front row seats of the, my first kind of global financial crisis. Um, and then I moved over and was trading European products during the Euro crisis. Um, and I moved to Barclays in 2012 to, to eventually run emerging markets. And I think this is where I started to recognize the usefulness and need of crypto before I knew what crypto was. Um, 2018, I left to go to HSBC to run all of Latin America. Um, and we had banks in Argentina, Chile, Colombia, uh, Mexico and Brazil. Um, and we had a very large presence in Argentina. And in 2019, uh, I was sitting in Buenos Aires when the capital controls got put on that are still here today. Um, you know, fun stat was the RG peso to the dollar was 12 to one in 2018. Uh, I think the gray and black market are somewhere around 700. Right? This is a large economy, um, has, Oil, oil exports, protein exports, um, you know, farm, uh, farm exports, and just, you know, hyperinflation is, has destroyed the buying power. And, you know, what was really interesting is that in, in places like Argentina, you can't buy a house unless you have dollars, right? And you haven't been able to convert more than a couple hundred bucks a month from pesos to dollars since 2019. So you have a generation that hasn't been able to store any wealth because their equity markets and bond markets can't keep up with inflation rates. Um, so the only real way to store, unless you have, you're internationally wealthy, the only way to store value or passively onto your family is through housing. But if you don't have access to dollars, you can't access that gain. So the real, like this, when you, when people think about store of value or medium of exchange, when you sit in the United States, yeah, it's kind of a foreign concept, but when you start, venturing outside the G3 or G4 and into emerging markets, you start to realize that. Um, so my career ended in the banking industry in 2020, late 2020, accidentally got into crypto, just started seeing some stuff come through my emails and, you know, went down that proverbial rabbit hole. And, um, and what I realized is a lot of friends of mine, either at Barclays or uh, HSBC or UBS had moved into crypto. So I reached out to colleagues, asked them what they were doing, um, you know, and really try to understand the mechanics, the landscape, how things work, how, you know, how people were taking risks, how were people uh, trading the market. And uh, 
in the end of 2020, I pitched Coinbase a DeFi derivative trading desk, like to build one. Uh, and they ended up hiring me the first week of February of uh, 2021 and away it went. So I was employee number one of a group called Coinbase Risk Strategies. Um, by the time I left a year and a half later, we were 10, 10 people. We had a hundred million in capital. Uh, we raised a hundred million in a debt note that we sold off to a major uh, money manager in the US. Uh, and then we were managing the treasury of a couple uh, protocols and VCs. So we had a pretty significant uh, presence in a short period of time. And it allowed me to really understand how the mechanics of spot trading, futures trading, and DeFi trading really operated. Not what a TradFi person would think it should operate, how it actually operated. That's so great because that's exactly the mission of what we're trying to educate our audience about is your journey has been completely from TradFi to DeFi. You know the TradFi markets in and out. Your expertise in sovereign debt and understanding government-issued currencies is especially applicable to the world of crypto because people are always talking in this sort of economic textbook fashion about store value and unit of account. But you've also seen the devastation that capital controls can have on an entire generation of people. And I wanna just underline that point because we had a recent podcast episode where we talked about this, where people who take for granted our financial system have no understanding of the true value of what crypto can offer because they haven't had to experience that hardship that you saw firsthand. So that experience must've been truly transformative for you when you did then discovered crypto. Yes, for sure. And I'll add one last piece. When people talk about 80 to 90% of all global trade happens in dollars, it doesn't mean it actually happens with a U.S. counterparty. It means that the U.S. dollar is such a strong currency that everybody will take it. That, But even countries that border each other, their exchange rates and the liquidity in there, like Brazil and Mexico or South Africa and Nigeria, the, the foreign exchange markets are, are very, very thin to non-existent. So if two people in Africa want to pay each other different countries, 90% of the time that trade is a trade out of the local currency into dollars and then back into the local currency because they can't trade with each other. So the reason I mentioned that is when the U.S. goes on a massive hiking spree, every loan, every transaction that happened cross border that was based on a stable dollar just gets worse, especially in the lending space. And we've started to see some of these DeFi lenders who lent into emerging markets, you know, learning, you know, everybody who lends into emerging markets realizes that the cross currency risks are taking. So if you lend in a foreign country in dollars and they have to earn the, the revenue in their local currency and dollar gets stronger, the size of their loan just increased, right? So they have to make even more money to pay back how much the dollar increased versus their currency, right? So we, there's you know, a pretty well-known protocol uh, is having troubles right now and uh, mainly because of defaults, but it's not really the default. It's the fact that the loan got so expensive in dollar terms because the local currency depreciated so much. Well, that, that's that's really interesting, Anthony, because that's you and you and you've explained that really well. That you know you kind of had a front row seat, and and you you saw the pain of how currencies and and the dollar work, and then then applied crypto to it as opposed to I think a lot of people, especially younger people, they were enamored by crypto, and then they look for a way to apply it. I mean, you already had a use case for it, a really good one. <laughs> and so I, you I, knew I, exactly how that, that poured into that, that mold. Someone had made a, 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 I'll steal this as my own, but someone had actually made this comment to me. And they said, the banking system has changed so much, has been so stagnant and the same for so many years. 
that you almost need to be 40 years old to remember the last time you got paid something in a bank account, right? I mean, the last true, time you got true. a yield. Absolutely. Well, one of the things, you know, we'd be interested in hearing uh, from you about is that you wrote an art article recently talking about, uh, I guess, really the concept or misapplication of the concept of risk-free rates. Um, do you want to you want to dig into that a little bit and 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 kind of explain, uh, you know, what you're talking about there? Because a lot of people assume, well, risk-free rate, rate means, you know, uh, I'm never going to lose my money, and uh, you know, it's, you know, it's like gravity; it, it always happens, and you know, I'm going to like get Tara money. Luna. It's always going to be exactly, exactly, guaranteed. So, right. so, 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 peel back that onion on that. Uh, that idea. Yeah. And, and what sparked the, the, the article was this growth. And, and, and I know we can we'll potentially talk about RWAs in a different, uh, a different time, but there was this, this movement to RWAs, right? And it was, it was, a lot of it was um, pivoting from DeFi protocols who, you know, as the U.S. interest rates went up, oddly enough, DeFi rates went down. Right, and you would think that the DeFi rate should trade at some spread above the risk-free rate or treasury rates, and what had actually happened it was quite the opposite. So there's this you know need to move more assets on chain because crypto assets, you know, a lot of the narratives have gone away, um, and many feel that the kind of rally that would take us out of this kind of doldrums we've been on will will need to be uh, preceded by rate cuts or at least the pricing of rate cuts. So we have this kind of expansion of real world assets, mainly focused on treasuries, um, and then taking that word risk free and applying it to all derivative of treasury. Right. So maybe this is, you know, getting in between the wall and the wallpaper, but um, the risk free rate is the overnight rate in which banks borrow and lend from each other collateralized with treasuries. That is the risk free rate. Right. That is the Fed funds rate. When people say, hey, we've tokenized a three-month T-bill, and that's also the, the risk-free rate, that's just incorrect. Because once you buy once you buy something that takes more than a day to get your money back, you have what's called duration risk, right? Meaning that because you bought something that, yes, it may mature and get 100% of your money back in X amount of time, but if you need to sell it before it matures, well, this product trades against the market. So if the Fed decides to surprisingly hike rates, or if the Treasury threatens not to pay its bills on time by the debt ceiling debate we had um, in May, you may not be able to get what you paid for it back if you try to buy it back, uh, if you try to sell it before it matures, or if your T-bill matures and we're in a debt freeze, right? And that payment may have to be uh, pushed off or which is, which happens almost. So I don't think we've ever delayed payments, but what tends to happen is you get closer and closer to these debt ceiling debates, the T bills that are supposed to mature and the treasuries that are supposed to mature within that window get crushed in price terms, right? So typically as you get closer and closer to maturity, the price linearly accretes slowly to par, but a lot of these money market funds can't hold these treasuries if they don't pay. So they'll sell them and the liquidity gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So sometimes these T-bills these can move 100 basis points, right? So you, you risk-free 
only accounts for the Fed funds rate. And if you start adding time to that, then it's no longer risk-free. Is it buying FTT tokens back the fourth quarter last year? No, but it is not risk-free is what the point I'm trying to make. It's all perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and and that that your your explanation of that duration risk and and how that all happens, I think we we saw the impact of that uh, with the uh, I guess uh, Silicon Valley Bank back in uh, I think it was in the spring, and how I think they kind of got got trapped in that situation to some extent, didn't they? That's a really interesting um, a really interesting point. This is the first time, that at least I've been through many crises since 07. Um, this is the first time a crisis was actually created from a safe asset, right? The, 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 what killed everybody was duration, right? I don't think so. So like, you know, I explained it in a pretty, you know, um, casual way when it, when you talk about duration on a three month T-bill, like, you know, who can't wait three months, but these guys weren't buying three month T-bills. They were buying 30 year bonds, right? And 20 year bonds and 30 year mortgages, right? And, you know, just to put it in perspective that people may make it kind of uh, simpler to understand, the long 30 year bond ETF almost lost more money than the S&P 500 last year. Think about that in, in percentage terms, right? So that duration is a very, very real risk, right? And that's what killed these banks. You know, on the other side, to be fair to them, the government increased the money supply like 3x, right? And they increased the money supply by issuing more debt. And these banks were mandated by law changes to hold this debt, right? But it, the scale and speed in which it happened, right, didn't allow them to backfill the right risk managers, the right hedging tools, right? You know, when I was a when when I was a treasury trader and an agency trader, um, you know, I've never heard. The, the way the way a bank like that would hedge their risk is through a swap desk, right? They would do an interest rate swap, swap fixed payments for floating payments, right? So that they wouldn't have this duration risk, right? They would hedge out that big move risk in prices. Well, I never heard of an SBV swap desk, right? Or a signature bank swap desk. And these guys had, I mean, SVB had 200 billion on their balance sheet. You know who also has 200 billion on their balance sheet? Freddie Mac. The government-owned controlled institution that two has 200 billion of assets on their balance sheet. So this is kind of how out of control it gotten, right? And, and then you put it into the context that we have almost 5,000 banks, right? And this is what they were taking in deposits and they had to make loans. There wasn't the, the ability to make loans was somewhat constricted, so they had to buy securities. Wow, that's 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 interesting. One another another uh, interesting aspect of that period of time is is that uh, you know the depegging of some of the stable coins. And I think in your article you said, well, you can't do anything because the banks are closed on the weekend, <laughs> and and how that bit people in the ass literally. And uh, you know, hey, we got the money; it's in the bank. It just doesn't open up till Monday morning. But you know, and when the crypto market is twenty four seven, three sixty five. That just, you know, you just, you, you deep egg and there's nothing you can do to stop that. Yeah. And listen, I actually think there's a, there's a, a mathematical equation that's kind of core in fixed income that's called the time value of money, right? So if I need my money, let, let's say the, the global banking market in the East Coast time closes at 4 p.m. on a Friday and 
I want to swap my stablecoin for dollars, you know, guys like Circle and Tether are subsidizing that, right? Because they're keeping a huge portion of that cash on the side to allow for an anticipated volume that would trade when the banks are closed. That's I say it's subsidized because that that cash could be earning 5% and it's not. Right? It has to be sitting liquid ready to go, not earning anything. Um so that we can have this myth that we are trading freely on chain, right? Like every time we're, you know, we're locked into the real world, we're locked into the finite universe that these assets are and these currencies are based on. Um, and, you know, if we want it to be 24 seven, then we have to think about the, 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 the potential of depegging. But honestly, I wouldn't even really call it a depegging. If you think about it, if you needed your money, the market was closed for two and a half days, right? What would what would you need to free up capital? What would you need to earn to make that loan for three days? On a typical weekend when the market's not going crazy, I don't know, 10, 15 basis points. So you would, instead of exchanging for one, you exchange for 99.90. But if you add the risk of the global financial crisis and the money not knowing where that cash, which banks that cash sat at and what was going to happen to those banks, because here's the thing. I don't know if most people know this, but on the Friday of SBB, the FDIC um, fully intended to haircut, and then um, the, the term haircut is meaning, you know, if you had $100 with a bank, they would haircut you, meaning they would give you less back, right? The San Francisco Federal Reserve, the Fed, the Treasury, had fully, and the FDIC had fully intended to have uninsured deposits take a haircut on that Friday. And then they reversed course on Sunday night. But, you know, the leading horse coming around the clubhouse turn was let people who are uninsured lose money. Now, if you think about at that point, USDC was 40 billion. So let's say they keep they say they keep a quarter of it in cash. So they had 10 billion in cash sitting at banks. Right. They didn't have 150 million banks to put 250 at. Right. So a good portion of that 10 billion was uninsured. Right. So that so you take the three days of time value, then you add this existential risk and, you know, USDC trading at 90 for three days. Yeah, it was a good trade if you bought it. But that was probably accurately priced for the information you had on Saturday morning. Interesting. Interesting. And I, I wanted to throw a little bit in here because I'd like to get your take on that, because, you know, we talk about risk free uh, rates and risk management and the whole idea of risk. You talked about time value of money. How did the the inverted yield curve play into this? You know, when, you know, uh, obviously that's something that doesn't happen all the time, but we've been with it here for a while now. And, ha you know, the long money, it's not getting, you know, you're not getting compensated for borrowing money or lending money at a longer term, which traditionally, you know, the longer you have a loan, the more risk there is of non-payment of that. So the rates should definitely be higher. So how, how is the inversion of the yield curve or what what part does it really play in, in this whole the backdrop of all these problems? Do you want me to start with why the curve is inverted and then go into how it plays? Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and give a little little uh, little little back backdrop to that and, and how it got there and, and what it portends for the markets and even going forward. Perfect. So an inverted yield curve means the I'll just pick some time points in time. The interest rate on a treasury bond for a one year is higher than an interest rate for a treasury bond in 10 years. 
right? So like you said, if I lend money longer, I should get paid more, right? Because of the risk of someone not paying me back. So this, in, this phenomenon of inverted yield curve doesn't happen very often. And almost always is a predecessor, as a, like a, it predicts a recession. Because the way people look at a treasury market and you know, understanding that if I want to lend my money longer, I should get paid more. But in these brief periods where the Fed has hiked rates to slow the economy, what people need to understand is hiking rates and cutting rates is a very blunt instrument. And the Fed always overshoots, right, in both directions. They cut too much, they raise too much. So what happens is as we've been hiking rates to start to kill inflation, the market anticipates that the Fed has gone too far. So whenever the curve inverts, it anticipates the Fed has over overhiked which means the, when the Fed hikes, what it means for the financial system is tightening liquidity, right? You know, people save more, which means there's less money being able to be lent, right? So as less and less money goes into the economy, it's easier news to see a recession coming, right? So people pull back, they hire less, they cut staff, they cut costs. Um, so the inverted yield curve is just a prediction that the Fed will cut rates in the future. And that's why the yield curve is inverted. Like we are at the highest point. We're not going to maintain a 550 interest rate for very much longer. Um, we believe it's more likely 350 or 375 where the kind of 10 year note is now. And actually that's even, even that's extremely high for the last 20 years because the 10 year interest rate is supposed to reflect roughly the 10 year growth rate of the U S right. So for the largest economy in the world to grow almost 4% a year for 10 years is a lot when your economy's 15 or 20 trillion, right? So, um, so very simply, the yield curve is inverted because we're, the market is expecting a recession. How deep it is, you know, this is when people start talking about soft landing. They're talking about how deep or shallow a recession will potentially be, but, you know, it's very hard to ride the sine wave and, and not have the, 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 if you have the peaks and not have the troughs, right? Like, Everything seems to revert to the mean, or at least I've become a reversion to the mean person over the last 30 years. Just everything seems to bounce back if given enough time. So that's why the yield curve is inverted. Um, what it means, I actually think what the inversion for the yield curve is, the real impact is going to be in the future. Um, because you have a scenario where, think about what banks do. Banks take in short-term deposits and they lend long. Right. And typically before this banking crisis and before we had interest rates, which is last time we had those were in 07, 08, banks literally sat on your money for nothing. And then they would go lend it out for mortgages and, and you know, home equity lines and small business loans. And they would earn significantly more than they were taking them in. But now with the yield curve inverted, what's happening is they have, and with all the money moving out into money market funds, the banks have to compete for deposits. And on the same time, the asset side, which is what they lend, doesn't exist, right? U.S. mortgage rates are 7.5%. Demand for mortgages is very low. So even if they were able to take money in, there really isn't a ton of demand to lend. So what's happening is all of these banks that are FDIC insured, and I'm about to drop an article on this tomorrow, um, are hemorrhaging cash, right? So, they, so the Fed and the Treasury stepped in during SVB and stopped them from going under. But what they've done is they put hundreds of banks in a negative net interest margin position. So net interest margin is essentially the profit of a bank, 
they borrow here, they lend here, the net of those two is their net interest margin, minus costs and other fees. So banks need to run a positive net interest margin, right? There are hundreds, if not a thousand banks running negative interest, net interest margin, right? And what that means is they're dying slowly, right? Because if the Fed doesn't cut rates, these net interest margins aren't going to change, right? They bought an asset at 3% and they're funding it at 6%. And the only way that changes is if the Fed starts to cut rates and brings that funding rate of 6% down closer to the 3%. So it's kind of a long winded to say is like the yield curve is predicting a recession, but this is how it's predicting it. You have tons and tons of banks in trouble. We can get into the commercial real estate problem because 90% of the commercial real estate sits at these banks, right? They're not sitting at Citi and JP Morgan, right? So I, the, there's an art, there's a, fa, a, a fun fact, or not so fun fact that 90% of the banks, um, guaranteed by FDIC insurance have 10 billion or less in assets, right? Um, there's 686 billion of uh, commercial real estate coming due in the next two years. Um, and that amount is three times. So most of that sits at these 10 billion in lower asset banks. And that amount is three times the capital, or sorry, the equity of those banks. Meaning roughly if 33% of those things default, you're wiping out thousands of banks equity, which would mean there'd have to be a bailout. The other fun fact is the FDIC's insurance fund only uh, insures about 1% of deposits. So there's 12 trillion in deposits that are being secured by 120 billion of capital sitting in the FDIC insurance fund. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that, that, that doesn't make you want to sleep really well at night if you, you think about it too much, especially if you're a banker. Not so fun fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I did have one more question before I throw it back over to Tyler, and it was about uh, the uh, the when Fitch down downgraded the uh, uh, the rating of of the government uh, debt uh, a while back. You know, it was because of an erosion or uh, crisis in in governance. Now, I I like the term, but what governance are they specifically talking about? How the Fed's managing things, how the administration is spending money. I mean, what what is is that just bank governance? What what governance are that were they talking about? I guess we have the past president on trial. It's looking like we have the current president potentially going to go on trial at some point in the future, or at least some of his family members. Right. This this is the type of political system that happens in South Africa, Brazil, Israel. Right. Like this doesn't shouldn't be happening in the United States. So that's one. Two, the frequency of the, the debt ceiling debates. Right. In the U.S., it, maybe it's not so obvious, but we are flouting probably the most significant advantage of a country is having the global, the world's reserve currency and playing political chicken with it to get to make sure that more bridges are built in Alabama or more you know, military bases don't get closed in Texas. Right. We're, we're playing Russian roulette with the planet's economic system. Right. And, you know, you can see that by the increasing frequency of these debt ceiling debates. Right. And then you talk about, you know, President Trump during office or maybe when he was running mentioned about defaulting on debts. So you have a scenario where we have massive debt. Right. And we have a political system that has to go to the brink to make 
bureaucratic decisions. And this will, this ties a little bit into my whole FDIC scenario, right? So in a world where 120 billion is not enough, right? Those three banks that went under in, in March wiped out about 40 billion, three. During 2008 to 2012, I think we lost like 570 banks. Okay, so like if this scenario with the yield curve stays inverted, net interest margins continue, we don't cut rates and we get a Republican president, right? You could see a scenario where the FDIC fund gets drained and yes, they have a line to the treasury, but at a certain number, Congress doesn't like 100, 200, 300 being spent without them having a say, right? And again, you know, who made all the decisions? The, the Fed and the Treasury. The next Fed and Treasury will be appointed by the next president. If that president doesn't care about fiscal responsibility or doesn't care about a sovereign debt rating or doesn't, like, the, a lot of these things that were, were are being taken for granted are, up, are jump balls, is what Fitch is saying. Now, we can reverse course, but that would mean that our political divisiveness in this country would, would reverse course. And, uh, you know, if you're a betting person, it's not high probabilities in the short term. Yeah, so the brinkmanship was something that I noticed from your article, Anthony, that I think is a very important point to think about from a governance perspective. And it reminded me of the chaos of a lot of DeFi projects where governance is a big issue that is sort of an unknown. And people price governance risk in different ways. And uh, for Fitch, this credit agency downgrading the U.S., it's taken a lot of confidence out of the system. And right now, people in crypto are hoping on confidence of the system so that they can earn 5% in TradFi. And so when you were talking about how it's weird that, you know, you need to be 40 years old to recognize the time in which a bank paid you. Well, it's like John and I were joking uh, in a previous episode about how some of the most degen people I know are buying the most boring asset class, which is bonds and T-bills, right? And so what has happened here that we now have crypto, not the yield being so much less, and the yield and TradFi being so much higher, how much longer can this last? Because I know a lot of my friends in DeFi and crypto have piled into TradFi products. You mentioned that this 5% may not last forever. Yeah, I mean, not to get super macro, but it looks like based on my conversations with a couple of friends that are still doing this, the treasury trading day to day and following the economy a little bit more closely than I am, that it's really hard to see the Fed cutting rates in the next year. So I think we're probably nine months to a year, pretty safe. Um, but eventually something will crack, right? And like we talked about the banking system, we talked about commercial real estate, like there, there's definitely challenges and headwinds coming, coming forward. So I think, you know, at this point, and, um, you know, we can destroy this if I'm wrong and if I'm right, we can leave it forever. But, you know, I think it looks about a year that we'll have these rates. Um, but you understand, we've like doubled the money supply in a tiny period of time. Right. The, this we've had zero interest rates for 15 years. Right. Like if you think about everything reverting to the mean and, and on average, the United States inflation rates about two percent. Right. Like if you had 15 years of zero, you have 15 years of four to five percent, you kind of get to two after 30 years. Now, I'm not not expecting That's, that to be the right, case. You see but, the surprise on my face. Right. For someone who's my age, who's only ever lived in a low interest rate environment. Right. Um, and think of crypto, which has only ever existed in a low interest rate environment. The white paper was in 2008 for Bitcoin. Crypto has never existed in a high interest environment. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and to your point about why 
DGENs are piling into treasuries. I think, in a word, I think it's probably maturity. I mean, I think it's, you know, when, when money was simple, right? I mean, think about you've had such, you, you've had hacks or, or exploits in some of the blue chips that you never thought could happen, right? Like we've had multiple scenarios where, you know, even Ave might be in trouble if certain amount of liquidation scenarios happen, right? You had Boiler Finance, which was like, you know, gaining real, real uh, traction as a lending protocol to take on the kind of heavyweights. And, you know, they, they, um, and your tech people on this call are going to butcher me, but like they, they created an update and they didn't audit it before they launched it. Like total own goal and wiped out the protocol, right? Like, so I think a lot of people are, are realizing that the environment's tough. The ability to sell their governance token for OPEX is becoming harder and harder. They have no ability to lend their tokens for dollars anymore, which they used to be able to do in the past. Um, and they still really believe in the space, so they need to extend their runway and they need to make sure they don't lose what little money's left after the bull run to be able to kind of you know survive as long as possible. So unfortunately, DeFi protocols buying treasuries is the, the height of being in a war of attrition. It's also extremely ironic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about risk management. We've thrown around these terms of risk and the way I've often thought of risk uh, is exemplified in one of my conversations with my friends during that weekend when USDC had de-pegged. And he's like, oh, this is an easy, uh, you know, 10, 20% return on my money. I'll buy at 89, 85 cents and I'll get it up to a dollar. And I, I explained to him in my view, and tell me if I'm wrong with, about this, Anthony, but I basically said, your risk of that being wrong is the chance that you lose all your money instead of the chance that you're just going to make a little bit like you're the risk that is being priced here is the chance that this could go all the way down. Now you were saying it was a short window, right? But at that time, all of the available information was like, Hey, look, there's a big hole here and this might not actually get filled. How should people think about risk and how should people manage their risk? Because risk just seems like a vague concept to a lot of people. And we don't really have a good grasp on how to minimize that. Yeah. That's a great, great question. And I think um, it, it, it's a crossroads where there's a very thin line between investing and gambling, right? And I think most people cross that line without knowing it. But I think if you're, if you're, if you're in the space to build, then you should minimize your, your, your core view of your treasury should to be earn the safest yields possible and keep my money safe because I'm here to build the future of finance not punt on NVIDIA stock, right? Or that next token, right? I'm here to do something. Managing my treasury should be, how do I ensure it's safe? Um, and how do I use the current interest rates to extend my money? Like that, that's what I would give as the advice. Um, maybe just digging a little bit into the, the thing. So if, if you buy treasuries we talked about with John, you have duration risk, right? So. The easy way to mitigate that is saying, okay, here, here's my burn rate. I know that I won't need this amount of money for at least six months. Great. Invest in a six-month T-bill. Everything else should be very short-dated. One week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. You don't want to be put in a situation where you have to sell a T-bill because it would really stink to make five or six percent and then lose that the day before you have to because you have to sell it. That's one. Two where your treasuries are being held, right? So if you open up a Schwab account or an interactive broker's account um, and you buy a treasury, you think you're safe. You could or could not be, right? 
SIPC is kind of the FDIC insurance for securities. So if you own treasuries in a regular margin account, you only have 500K protection. So if you put your $10 million treasury in a margined, uh, in a margin account at a broker, like Charles Schwab, you could, you only, you're only guaranteed 500 grand in a default, not 10 million. Now, <clears throat> the reason I mentioned Charles Schwab is because Schwab has a bank. And when the whole Western Alliance bank and the you know, bank of bank of Hawaii, the Pacific bank and, you know, SVB and all that stuff went, the stocks went down, you know, Schwab lost half its equity value, right? So the way you can protect yourself against that is call your broker and ensure that those treasuries are in a holding cost account, not a margin account. And the thing is most brokerage accounts, they default to margin. Why do they default to margin? Because when you buy treasuries from them, they make no money, you know, pennies on that trade. Where they make their money is they lend out those treasuries to other broker dealers to cover shorts. And that's how they make most then if you want to have a, a proper risk management framework, we've talked about like, okay, so there's usual risks, like smart contract risk, depegging risk, things like that. But from like the TradFi perspective, you went through a handful of these things. Um, what are you doing at Trident Digital Group that's sort of helping in this narrative? And, and how are you guys thinking about this space? And what is it that you're looking to bring to the market that sort of solves some of these problems? Yeah, th thanks for that, that question. So my very first job on Wall Street was doing what was called uh, repo trading repo and reverse repos. So what a repo is, is a re, re, uh, repurchase agreement. And what that means is that re repos are just loans to banks where they have to collateralize that loan one-to-one -one with treasuries. So if Citi lends money to, to JP Morgan, JP Morgan collateralizes that with treasuries. And that sits at the Bank of New York, the kind of only major custodian left. And where those treasury sits are segregated from JP Morgan and the Bank of New York. So if everybody goes down around them, those treasury are unencumbered and they don't go through bankruptcy. Right. So that is what a reverse repo or reverse repo is. So that product, which trades four trillion plus a day and is how all major banks fund themselves, is not a product that retail or even institutional people who are not banks can access. And Arguably, that is that repo rate, that rate that's paid on dollars backed by treasuries for one day, meaning it has no duration, um, is the risk-free rate. That's the only attainable risk-free rate, in my view. But that product doesn't exist. You can achieve that product through a money market fund, right? But that money market fund also owns treasuries and does some other things uh, in there. The product that we bring to market is we're bringing that repo product directly to clients. So... For every dollar they put into this product, we will back it one to one uh, with treasuries and it sits in a um, it sits at the Bank of New York in a segregated account. So if we disappear, the broker dealer disappears, the bank disappears, that money's sitting there one to one. So and you that think about the it the real risk free rate. In my humble, humble opinion, yes. That is the real risk free rate because it reflects the Fed funds rate, which is supposed to be the risk free rate. Uh, and it's also collateralized with treasuries. And what it also is, is a limitless, if you compare it to the FDIC insurance, like if you do a side-by-side -side FDIC insurance, this product, we all agree at a certain size, when you only have 1% of what you're guaranteeing, you need other factors to kick in to, if, the, if the losses are big enough. In this scenario, you could do hundreds of millions, you could do billions, uh, and there's no cap because every, every dollar is backed by a treasury. The only scenario in which 
you lose in this uh, case is if the government decides not to pay the treasuries. And I'll tell you this, the FDIC insurance will default before the treasury defaults on its debt, but no retail has actually access to it. So it's not super clever. It's just bringing something that I've always found super useful. Um, access and, and it's, it's not tokenized. So it, I don't think it falls under the real world asset tokenization, but it's actually bringing this product to the Web3 community, whether it's fintechs and startups directly with their cash or DAOs and foundations who have to, uh, stable rights. Democratizing access to the true risk-free rate. I think that's the title of the podcast. And I think, I think, I think I'm going to steal that. that. I think I'm going to steal that from my, uh, for, for my presentations. Yeah, I think that should be the title of it. And uh, I can see it, Trident Digital, and that's what you guys do. So um, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Anthony. I appreciate that you're trying to bring a really sophisticated, what sounds like a very sophisticated product, but ultimately under the hood, you've priced out that duration risk. You've worked really hard to get this refined to a point where you can get this yield that's very safe for people. Um, could you tell people where they can find more about this product and your company and what you're doing? Yeah, so our, our website is uh, tridig.io, T-R-I-D-I-G.io. Uh, and, you know, great timing because we just announced our seed round uh, today. So, um, yes, congratulations, by the way. Today. Thank you, thank you. Um, it's, been a, it's been an awesome process, and I feel like we're building a series of products that will do well in the, in the bear market and help people get through. And uh, we have a lot more fun stuff to do once the market uh, goes back to kind of higher prices and, and, uh, and better opportunities. Yeah, well, you're positioned well to be ready for that when that comes. So their very first podcast since going public with the news about their fundraise, we're lucky to have Anthony. Timing's everything. <laughs> For sure. It sure is. So For sure. Any, any, any last comments, Anthony, you'd like to share with our audience or any suggestions? Um, for folks who just want to, to stay positive in this environment? I think you're giving us a lot of hope, but do you have any last message you'd like to share? I think it's, it's really just keeping it simple, right? If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and when you're thinking about investing your money, just really be, be clear about what you're doing it for. If you're doing it to extend your runway and keep it safe, then there's a very small set of products to look at. Um, if you're trying to shoot, shoot the lights out, then there's a different set of products. Just make sure that, you know, once you've decided what your, your risk appetite is and what your goals are, you know, a lot of information is available, right? And you, there's a lot of people in this community who will help out. And I'm happy for people to DM with questions of the way they've managed their, their treasuries. Um, happy to do it because I really hate to see people, you know, after what we've been through over the last three years or two years, getting blow up on something that, um, is, was sold as as uh, as being risk free when it was. Thank you for that, Anthony. That's really what we try to share with our audience is to be skeptical and to look into these things. We want to be a resource to help people learn more about that. So if you're listening to this and you feel inspired by some of the stuff Anthony shared, join our community. Uh, like Anthony said, he's got a lot of great resources here that we can learn from. And again, thanks, Anthony, for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, and for everybody listening, please consider giving us a like and subscribe if this was interesting for you. And we'll catch you on the next one.